0: Let me invite you this morning to join me in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 4, Proverbs 4. Recently, a colleague shared with some of us a US map that highlighted the Mississippi River and its many tributaries throughout our country. It was really an impressive image, something I hadn't quite uh, looked at carefully before. And of course, down the middle of our country, more or less, there was the dark blue line of the Mississippi itself, running from northern Minnesota, and all the way down through the state of Louisiana, which is over 2,300 miles. Then there were, I'm guessing, thousands of lighter blue lines that stretched out in almost every direction over the bulk of our nation. These were the tributaries, some big, some small. And those streams and rivers start the flow of water toward the Mississippi, as far west as Denver and Billings, Montana, and as far east as Pittsburgh and the Allegheny Mountains. Together, all of those bodies of water cover approximately an area of 1.2 million square miles. Those tributaries take water from 31 of our states and two Canadian provinces and carry it to the mighty Mississippi. And if you wonder what is it like when all of that comes together and when all of that is pushed out of the continent, what is it like there at the bottom where all of this water dumps into the Gulf of Mexico? The average rate of drainage is somewhere around 4.5 million gallons of water per second. Now, no illustration is perfect, but as I think about that, it strikes me as a pretty good image for what we're looking at in our text this morning, which is Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. You might be able to quote this verse. The Lord says this, "'Keep thy heart.'" with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life my heart is like the mississippi it is liable to be shaped by all kinds of influences swirling around me and they mash up with the inclinations of the heart that are already there and all of them together somehow build up a force that ends up gushing out in every action that I take throughout my life. Now the world talks about the heart as well. And its message today especially could be summarized by that cliche, follow your heart. That's a basic theme that we hear all the time in everything from pop music to Disney movies to the world of marketing and sometimes even the scientific community. It's what's been called expressive individualism. The idea that you are free to make of yourself literally whatever you want, to design your own identity, to determine what it is that's gonna make you personally happy, you do you. And you can pursue that no matter what anybody says and even no matter what God himself has hardwired into creation. Now we hear that as Christians and we understand how incompatible that philosophy of life is with the biblical worldview. So how do we respond? Often our reply is to shout Jeremiah 17:9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. No, don't follow your heart. There's a place for that kind of warning and I have preached sometimes that way myself. And yet, we really cannot leave it at that. If we look at things more broadly in light of how the Bible talks about the heart, here is what we discovered. Ultimately, everybody is going to follow their heart anyway. That's almost a part of the definition of what it means to be a human being, you are going to follow your heart. Really, nobody has to tell you to do that. We really can't help it. You and I do what we do because inside we are what we are. Out of the heart are the issues that is the outgoings in every area of life. Here's how one translation puts this verse, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. That is true for non-Christians and for Christians. It is true for immature Christians as well as mature Christians. And so the answer to the world's follow your heart message isn't just to say, don't follow your heart, It is to say, what you need is for your heart to be fundamentally transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then as a disciple of Christ, you need your heart more and more to be shaped by the word of God and by the spirit of God so that your flesh has less and less influence on you and so that more and more, you come to love what God loves and to hate what god hates and in that process by god's own gracious working in us you and i have the responsibility to do what this text says that is to guard or to protect our hearts here is how the puritan john flavel summarized the teaching of this passage the greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God, and the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. The keeping and right managing of the heart in every condition is the great business of the Christian life. This critical duty of keeping the heart. Is what I want us to consider together this morning before we get into it very far we have to stop and we have to define precisely and biblically what this term heart means when the Bible uses the term heart it's usually not referring to the physical organ that's here kind of in the middle of our chest it's talking about an immaterial reality and yet there is a strong parallel between the material heart and the immaterial heart. You understand that the material heart really is at the core of your body. It is the powerhouse in the sense that it keeps pumping so that your entire body is all the time supplied with the blood that it needs and with the oxygen and the nutrients that that blood carries. In the same way, your immaterial heart is at the core of your inner person. And in terms of the habits of your life, in terms of the values of your life, in terms of the direction of your life, the heart in this sense is the powerhouse that drives everything. And just like your material heart has different chambers with a little bit different functions, Your immaterial heart includes a number of different but interrelated elements or functions. For example, according to scripture, your heart encompasses something like your conscience. I think of a passage like 1 uh, 1 Samuel 24, 5, where we read that David's heart smote him. It smote him with conviction for having cut off the corner of Saul's robe there in the cave, so that's just one illustration of the many facets of this. But as God's people have studied the hundreds of usages of this heart terminology in the Bible, it's become clear that we could we could summarize everything or the essence of it, the most important parts of it or aspects of it are three. And you may have heard of these before. There is first our capacity to think or to reason, what we typically call our mind. And just to give you one example, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 talks about every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart. You might expect that I would say the second component is the emotions or the feelings that we have. And those are certainly included, but there's something even more foundational and determinative than our feelings. I'm talking about how the heart includes our inmost desires. What we call our inclinations or what's classically been called our affections. We're talking there about what you fundamentally love and want what it is that would give you pleasure. Here's an example from Psalm 21, verse 2, which is talking about an answer to prayer. And it says to the Lord, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. So the heart is where your basic desires, wishes, what you delight in, what your love is is And finally, of course, the heart includes as well the will. That is the capacity to seek those desires, to make the choices that are necessary to get whatever it is you want. And here is another illustration. This is very positive. Ezra chapter seven and verse 10. Ezra had prepared his heart to actually do something, to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Putting all of that together, Dr. Craig Troxell says this, the heart is the governing center of a person. When used simply, it reflects the unity of our inner being, like everything there is about you. But when it is used comprehensively, it describes the complexity of our inner being, as composed of mind, what we know, desires, what we love, and will, what we choose. Given how central all of that is, it's no wonder then that Proverbs 24 urges upon us to protect that thing, to keep it safe, like, like we're guarding some precious jewel, or maybe more to the point, like soldiers guard access to the facilities where a nation's military strategy is decided and communicated. You don't just let anybody in there, and they can't just do whatever they want. It's a highly protected environment. Hopefully, we understand the importance of this, but the question we have is how, practically speaking, do I go about protecting my heart? After all, this is something immaterial. I can't see it. I can't hold it in my hands. It's not like I can go inside of me somehow and build some kind of shield around my inner man. Practically speaking, how do we guard our hearts? The Bible actually gives many answers to that question. But I want to focus today on the context here of Proverbs 4.23. When we look at the immediate context of this verse And the broader context of this verse it's also like those mississippi tributaries that are flowing into the text and are explaining for us something of what it looks like to guard your heart and we find the first answer to that how question in the verses that come right after verse 23. look with me at verses 24 to 27 the end of the chapter solomon writes put away from thee a froward mouth, and perverse lips put far from thee. Let thine eyes look right on, let thine eyelids look straight before thee, ponder the path of thy feet, and let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left, remove thy foot from evil. These statements tell us to monitor and to discipline our external actions. That's actually the first method for guarding the heart. Now, when I say that, does that that kind of seem backward? It, It really does sound odd that we could guard the internal by guarding the external, but if you think about it, actually it does make sense, at least as a starting point here. On the one hand, your external actions, they're not just things that you do. They, they actually give you a better understanding of what is happening inside. You know, when it comes to the heart and all this talk about your inner person, you really can drive yourself crazy with introspection and trying to figure out what you're all about inside and what your motives are. This passage gives you a simpler way, and that is just to evaluate your characteristic actions. What do I characteristically do? What comes out of my life? That's a window into what's happening inside. Remember, for example, that Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that idea, that, that, that realm of life of our speech is the first thing that comes up here. What do I normally find myself talking about? If it is corrupt communication, the passage says, don't let those wrong speech patterns continue. Repent of that. Turn away from it. So that's one way in which these two are related. But on the other hand, our external actions have a shaping effect on our hearts. Remember all of those tributaries flowing into the Mississippi. None of us is impervious to outside influences. Our hearts are actually shaped by all kinds of external factors. And so this passage tells us to be extremely careful about what we are looking at with our eyes and where we are going with our feet. It's no wonder then that preachers will regularly warn us about the choices that we make, for example, and what we look at in entertainment. Because what we view and also what we listen to isn't just a matter of having fun. Whether we realize it or not, it is having a shaping influence on how we think, on what we love, and what we choose to pursue in life. And at the least, it tends to make us more tolerant of the elements that we're being entertained by. Earlier in this passage, we find that there is another stream of external influences beyond the ones that are listed here at the end. And you can take a look at verses 14 to 16. There we read this, "'Enter not into the path of the wicked, "'and go not in the way of evil men,' Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. For they sleep not, except they have done mischief, and their sleep is taken away unless they cause some to fall. That speaks to the issue of our friends. The people you hang around with, the people whose example you watch, and whose counsel you listen to, they are also inevitably going to have an impact on the affections of your friends heart. And here, I think of one of the great ironies of this whole expressive individualism emphasis. Very few people in history have actually been individuals in the sense that we're talking about here. Basically, what ends up happening is we just change the crowd that we're listening to, that we like, and that we're following. And in so many cases, it's the choice to let ungodly influences shape our worldview and our desires. And so Solomon tells us that if we want to guard our hearts, we've got to be careful about our external actions and how they influence us internally. And yet, I don't want to to dwell on the negative as though just by avoiding the bad stuff, everything is going to be okay in my heart. The next thought here is to the positive side and look at the verses that are right before Proverbs four twenty-three. He says, My son, attend to my words, incline thine ear unto my sayings, let them not depart from thine eyes, keep them in the midst of thine heart, for they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. That passage is talking about how you and I respond to the truth of God. And notice especially verse 21, he says, keep them in the midst of thy heart. The word keep there is a synonym of the word keep in verse 23. And so if you're wanting to know how do I keep my heart, he's saying here by keeping God's words inside of your heart. It's one thing to hear the truth. It's another thing to attend to it eagerly so that you grasp it and then you rehearse it in your mind over and over until it sticks and and begins actually to shape the outlook of your life. And so this is why we are so often admonished to pay attention to all the preaching that we hear. It's also why we're encouraged to meditate daily on scripture for ourselves to make the Bible our own. Guarding our heart this way is not something that you can do once and for all or just maybe once a week to check it off a list. It is a slow and lifelong battle to cultivate the right kinds of loves, given all of the challenges that we face in that area. And the chief means God uses to do that is the truth that he has revealed in the pages of Scripture. But I want to be just a little more specific in the application As you ask, in this passage, who is the one speaking the word of God? The chapter divides up into three sections. Each of them starts with an appeal to a son or sons. And like most of Proverbs, this chapter is the counsel of a father to a son. And recognize that the son is not some little kid. If you've read Proverbs, you know that it is full of all kinds of adult topics. It is focused in its teaching, actually, on people who are in your stage of life, young adults. And so a part of keeping your heart is seeking out and following the biblical advice that your parents give you. And we could broaden that out to other spiritual leaders the Lord has put in your life. It's like a conversation I had yesterday with a student, very teachably desiring encouragement and help in his walk with the Lord. And he says, so what do you do personally to meditate on the Bible? And on that point, listen to some other things in this passage. He says at the very beginning hear children the instruction of a father attend to no understanding for I give you good doctrine forsake not my law for I was my father's son tender and only beloved in the side of my mother he taught me also and said unto me let thine heart retain my words keep my commandments and live what you see there is that this whole thing is a multi-generational process one father gives the truth to his son, and that son takes it and passes it on to his own son. That is so countercultural. Our world is oriented largely to the differences among generations. Like each generation is its own thing that needs to figure out its own way by itself, and almost reinvent the wheel every time. The biblical picture is that there is a body of wisdom that is passed down from generation to generation, and that wisdom is what leads to the spiritual and moral health of the people of God. Now, we could think about some other applications here regarding meditating on Scripture, but before we close, I want to make one other point. You could look back on everything I've said. You could summarize it this way, that you keep your heart by keeping some stuff out and keeping other stuff in. And yet, when we talk about all of this input into our hearts, I do not wanna convey some sense that this is a a transactional or an academic process. That responsibility of guarding your heart is fundamentally a relational thing, which is the last thought that I wanna leave with you, that if you're interested in, in, in keeping your heart in the light of the broader context of this verse, grow in your personal relationship with the God of wisdom. We see that in Proverbs' emphasis on the fear of the Lord as being the key to wisdom, right? It is the beginning of wisdom. And that fear is not that you're walking around scared all the time that God's going to blow you away. Somebody has defined the fear of the Lord as an indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and all that fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. And I don't have the time to pursue that further, but I want to leave you with one other thought, and that is the bigger context of the Bible and how all of this about wisdom and the heart comes to a climax in the New Testament. Colossians 2-3 says that in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of this about wisdom comes to a consummation in his person, in his work, in his ministry of salvation, and it is ultimately through a growing love relationship with him that we find our hearts protected. Or it's also been put this way, you cannot expel wrong heart affections simply by telling them to go away. Those are expelled only when they are replaced with a greater affection, love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, may we see from this passage the importance of guarding our hearts. And would you help us to regularly be taking the practical steps we need to in order to do that. Most of all, would you grow us in our love for Christ so that our hearts are given over more fully to him instead of to lesser and to worthless things. And we pray in his name, amen.